And then the other thing I wanted to say is, as has been pointed out by uh, Stephen, by Lloyd, it's a little chilly this morning. Um, but uh, it's not as cold as it is in Central City, Nebraska right now. <laughs> and it'll be sunny today. It's a nice sunny day out, and, and we'll get up in the 50s. They're supposed to get up all the way to three today. So... Uh, But we do praise God for the seasons, do we not? And what he gives us. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke 1. Luke chapter 1. And join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, now as we turn to studying your word, as we look to to see what you want us to know, Father, surrounding the announcement of the birth of Jesus, Lord, I pray for your words. I pray that you give me boldness, that you give me clarity, Father, help me articulate your truth, not my truth, Father, but your truth. We pray that we are all touched by this, Father, that we go away changed people, having learned from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the week before Christmas, and this morning I want us to look back at what happened before Jesus was born. And we find all kinds of clever ways to announce that someone is expecting a child, There's celebrity gossip stories about baby bumps. There have been sitcom episodes about wives telling their husbands that they're expecting. And people share different information about the fact that they're going to have a child over social media. Some say whether the baby is going to be a boy or a a girl, while others don't. And some share the, the names that they've already picked out for the children. Well, God announced the pending birth of his son, too. And today we're going to look at that. It was an announcement like no other. And while focusing on Luke, I do want to set the stage for what is about to happen. So to do so briefly, I'm going to start in Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It was written about 424 BC. And Malachi was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. In the book of Malachi, we find the last prophecy that was given out of the Old Testament. And it takes place about 400 years before the events of Luke take place. Now some call these the silent years because God did not send a prophet. He didn't talk during this time and and, and give his word out. But we need to understand that God is hardly silent. During these 400 years, the prophecies that Daniel gave were coming to pass on the world stage. Governments rose and fell. There were the Medes and the the Persians and the Greeks and the Egyptians. Rulers assumed power and then were replaced. Darius, Alexander the Great, Ptolemy I the Seder, and Antiochus III. And the Jews who had been dispersed during the exiles of Israel and Judah largely remained outside of Palestine. Now one of the things that I find interesting is that the last time there was a 400-year gap, it was when Israel was in Egypt. They were being oppressed by Egyptians, just as God told Abraham would happen in Genesis 15, 13 through 14. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Only now, 
The Jews were not suffering because of outsiders. Now they were suffering because of their own sin. And in the book of Malachi, we find several rebukes. The first of these is where Malachi rebukes the religious leaders. He says their offerings were polluted. They didn't give the best. Now they offered the blind, the lame, the sick animals. They didn't want to give God the best of what they had. They gave him what they couldn't sell. They gave him what was worthless. Their instructions were not in keeping with what God taught. They caused the people to sin. And they lived their lives in violation of God's commands. Malachi rebukes the people for their sinful practices. At that time, divorce was rampant. Israelites married those who served false gods. There was rampant immorality. And they withheld their tithes to God. Again, they didn't give him the best that they had. And Malachi said that in so doing, they were actually robbing God by not giving to him. They were robbing him. People even asked, what's the value in serving God? The arrogant are called blessed. And the evil people, they not only got away with it, they seemed to prosper. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? Well, Malachi prophesies the coming of a messenger and of the Lord himself. And this is what we see in Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Let me read that for you real quickly here. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. The first messenger that Malachi mentions is to prepare the way for the second messenger of the Lord. But then this is when the Lord is mentioned. He is the messenger of the covenant. He will sit as the refiner and purifier. And this takes us to the last prophecy of the Old Testament found in Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, all the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This was the last prophecy given for 400 years. 
God promises that that day is coming when evildoers will be punished. On that day, the righteous will rejoice. And he says that he will send Elijah the prophet. And then God doesn't speak again for 400 years. Which takes us up to the events of Luke 1. Now the gospel of Luke was written probably in about 60 or 61 A.D., Luke, as you know, also wrote the book of Acts. They were considered a two-volume work, Luke and, and Acts. Luke was not Jewish. Luke was himself a Gentile born in Antioch. And we know that he was a physician. He was not an eyewitness to the events of the gospel. His information comes from eyewitnesses. And although he later was present for some of the events in the book of Acts. And this is what he has to say as he opens his book, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Now, for those of you that are police officers or work in law enforcement, I mean, Luke and Acts are a police report. He's taking eyewitness accounts and things he's witnessed. I mean, I, I love Luke and Acts. He gives us a great amount of detail that confirms the times and the things that happened. For example, in Luke 2, 1 and 2, he says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. This helps us put the time of these events. Of all the Gospels, Luke has the most detailed description of the Nativity. And it's probably the best known of all the accounts. And as I've mentioned before, it is one of the best known and, and quoted by that eminent theologist Linus Van Pelt as he spontaneously in 1965 quoted it from memory before an assembly of his peers. So then we turn to Luke 1 to read what happened when God spoke again after 400 years. And he did so to announce the fulfillment of his promises. So look with me at Luke 1. We'll start with verse 5. In this first part I call the God's announcement, the birth of the messenger foretold. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Right away, Luke starts to set the stage for the miracle surrounding Christ's birth. And we see Zechariah and Elizabeth, now, they walked in faith before God. And we know that we are saved through faith. Abraham, like Enoch, and Noah before him, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses were considered righteousness. Not because of what they did, but because of their belief. Now, this couple is old, and they have no children. To be barren in those days was considered a disgrace, and it was often attributed to sin. But here Luke dispels that. We know that Elizabeth was considered righteous. And recall that there were others in the Bible who were also childless. 
Sarah and Abraham were childless, and they were old. Rebekah, the mother of Esau and Jacob, was childless for a while. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and Rachel, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. In each of these cases, God intervened, proving his sovereignty. The Bible tells us that children are a gift from God. And yet today we treat them like so much inconvenience that we are willing to take their lives as if they're nothing more than a lump of flesh. Well, let's read further with verse 8. Now he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. So here is Zechariah faithfully doing his job as a priest. And he's chosen by lot on that particular day to go into the temple and burn incense. Now this is a very high honor for a priest. And usually it's afforded only once in a priest's lifetime. And not every priest got to do this. It took place right outside the Holy of Holies. The most holy place. It was separated by a veil. Now only the high priest was allowed to go beyond that point. Beyond the veil. And he could only do so once a year. And because of the solemnity of this. Priests were called to offer incense. And they did so with fear and trembling. Because to blaspheme was to die. And so it was very, very solemn occasion, treated very carefully. Because we know that the Bible tells us that the incense being offered is the prayers of the people. And so the people are outside praying, and inside Zechariah is offering up the incense. See, the people don't go inside to see this. They worship from outside. And thus we have the multitude gathered while this is going on. Now while he's inside doing this, Suddenly an angel appears to Zechariah. He's standing right next to the altar. And Zechariah was troubled and afraid. Now angels, for all those cute little descriptions we have of them, these little cherubic faces and these little pins that we have, they're actually terrifying creatures. They're wise. They possess intelligence. And Psalm 103.20 tells us they're mighty Remember that two of them struck the men of Sodom with blindness when they wanted to attack Lot. An angel rolled away that big stone covering Jesus' tomb. And when humans encounter angels who are not disguised as men, the common response is to fall down. Think of the Roman soldiers at the tomb of Jesus. Angel appears, they drop like dead men. So it's understandable that Zechariah is afraid. And I couldn't help but think of, as we sang the song this morning, fall on your knees, or hear the angels' voices fall on your knees. That's the common response when angels encounter humans. We're terrified of them. But look at what happens next. Follow me with verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Do you see the parallels with what God predicted, what God said would happen in Malachi? It's right there. This is the fulfillment of Malachi. Well, first we learn from this passage that Zechariah has been praying for Elizabeth to have a child. Isaac prayed for Rebekah when she was barren. So here's the announcement that God is granting his request. Now, we don't know how old Zechariah is, but we know he's old. And this didn't stop him from praying. He still prayed. And I have to wonder how often we don't pray and how often we don't keep praying because we limit God. Zechariah didn't limit God. He kept praying. And we should too. We should persist in prayer. Well, Gabriel tells Zechariah about John. He says that many will rejoice at his birth. He says that John will be great before the Lord. And indeed, Jesus says that later on in Luke. In Luke 7, 28, we read, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, he must not drink wine or strong drink. This is kind of akin to the Nazarite vow. They didn't drink wine. They didn't drink strong drink. It's a life of asceticism. And I'm not saying that John was a Nazarite, but there are some parallels there. And it said, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. This is evidence of the calling of God. John has clearly been set apart from ministry right at the birth, right at the start from conception. He is set apart for ministry. And then look at verse 16 again. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, surely Zechariah, a priest, a man who is considered righteous, knew of Malachi's prophecy. So he knows, hey, here's a 400-year-old prophecy, and, and this is coming around. And Zechariah is part of it. He's part of the unfolding of this prophecy. So what does Zechariah do? He wants proof. Verse 18 says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So the angel obliges him. You want proof? Well, we read starting in verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So Zechariah wants proof. How will this be? Well, first, Gabriel identifies himself. 
Gabriel is a special messenger of God. He stands in the very presence of the Lord. And he is only one, he is one of only two angels that is ever named in the Bible. Do you know the name of the other one? It's Michael. We first read of Gabriel in Daniel 8.16 when he appeared to Daniel in a vision. And by the way, Daniel, when he saw Gabriel, he fell on his face when he encountered Gabriel. Now look at the irony here. Zechariah has been praying for a child. He's now given the honor of offering incense in the temple right outside the Holy of Holies. No one but the priest chosen for this duty is allowed in. And while he's in there, at the very altar, suddenly there's an angel standing next to the altar. And this angel tells Zechariah that Zechariah's prayers have been answered. So right away, this indicates some special knowledge that prayers have been made. And Zechariah asks, how do I know this? And I'm reminded when I was a, a detective, I had an undercover operation. And at the end, we made an arrest of the man, and we were back at the police station. And he's sitting inside the interview room. So here's a guy handcuffed, sitting in a room with four bare walls, a table and three chairs. And there's a postal inspector who was guarding him. He was part of the operation. And I walk in. I've now changed clothes. And I'm, I walk in to conduct an interview with him. And the postal inspector, now he's from Kentucky, He's a good old boy named Brad. And Brad sits there and looks at the man and says, I'd like to introduce you to Detective Jeff Miller of the Los Gatos Police Department. And the suspect looked at me and he said, I want to see some ID. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, well, here's my badge. Here's my gun. You're wearing my handcuffs and you're in my police station. I don't know how much more ID you need from that, sir. Well, here's Zechariah. Zechariah is standing in front of the altar. There's an angel, and he's got an answer to prayer. I don't know how much more proof he thinks he needs, but Zechariah needs proof. Now, a priest's disbelief in the presence of God is no small matter. Recall what happened when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered strange fire. He commanded them not to do so. So when they did this, fire came out and, uh, and consumed Nadab and Abihu. Aaron, their father, was not allowed to mourn publicly. In fact, Moses told Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. It was a very serious thing to doubt and to disobey God. And when a priest does it, there's dire consequences. But God did not strike Zechariah dead. Now consider God's patience. He's been silent for 400 years. And the first person he sends, he speaks to, this guy asked for proof. But he did affect Zechariah temporarily. He took away Zechariah's ability to speak. And when Zechariah comes outside, the people know something has happened, but he can't tell them. 
How do you communicate something like that without being able to talk? So he tries to make signs for them. I'm not sure this worked out too well because it wasn't an established sign language. So in, in, the, in the more casual side of me, I envisioned something like charades. Three words. First word. First syllable. He's having trouble communicating and they're not getting it. Well, in the end, Zechariah finishes his service and he goes home. And then what happens next? Well, we turn to verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. After she's pregnant, Elizabeth sequesters herself for these five months. Now, some suggest that this is because no one really believes she's pregnant. And so she waits until she's showing. And then she'll go out and go, look, I'm pregnant. But note that she praises God and gives him the glory for what he has done. She recognizes it is a work of grace of the sovereign God. So in his first announcement in over 400 years, God tells a humble priest that his last announcement would soon be fulfilled with the birth of Zechariah's son, John. Israel's been waiting in anticipation, waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. And then you have Zechariah having trouble believing when it was actually going to happen. How about you? Do you believe what God says? I wonder how many of us Suffer needlessly because we don't take God at his word when he tells us things. When we read it in his Bible. But instead we worry, we doubt, we wonder. We don't trust what God has told us. Well, God has prepared the messenger who would prepare the world for his son. But the really good news was yet to come. So in the second section, I labeled it God's announcement the birth of his son foretold. First it was the messenger, now it's his son. Now the birth, or the announcement of John's birth was a, a stunning miracle. A barren woman advanced in age was going to have a child. And not just any child, but the messenger from prophecy who would prepare the way for the Lord himself. And anyone versed in the prophecy of Malachi had to wonder what was up. So now we fast forward by about six months. And we pick up the story in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Right away, we see that God sent Gabriel, once again, sent Gabriel to Mary, the same messenger who appeared to Zechariah. Now, I can't help but wonder what it was like when Zechariah could talk and they compared accounts. Hey, the angel who appeared to me was named Gabriel. Hey, that's the name of the guy who appeared to me too. Here's what we know about Mary. She was living in Nazareth. 
This is a city in the region of Galilee. She was a virgin. She was engaged to a guy named Joseph, who we know from Matthew 1 was a descendant of King David. And we later learn in Luke 3 that she was also a descendant of King David. Now, John MacArthur in his commentaries tells us that in those days, girls were engaged or committed in marriage to someone at the age of 12 or 13. The girl and the boy remained unmarried and did not cohabitate in every way that that means for a year. And during this time, the, the girl proved her faithfulness and proved her purity while the boy prepared a home for them. And while they weren't married, they nonetheless were considered as man and wife and could only be separated by a divorce. She was betrothed to Joseph. And at the end of this one year, then there's a, a seven-day feast and there's a, a big marriage ceremony and, and they come together. So here we have a very young girl. A girl who is greeted by an angel. And he says, greetings, O favored one. Now Mary's troubled by this greeting. She's trying to figure this one out. Gabriel explains by telling her not to be afraid. He tells Mary that she has found favor with God. Can you recall in the Bible someone else who's found favor with God? Genesis 6.8 tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now in both these cases... The favor of God was an act of grace. It was not an act of merit. It wasn't because of anything that Mary or Noah earned or did to deserve this. Now, there are some that think that Mary was without sin. But you see, this flies in the face of everything the Bible teaches. Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous. No, not one. Unless you think this was only a New Testament concept... Paul is actually quoting from Psalm 14. Psalm 14 was written by Mary's ancestor, David. In Romans 3.23, we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this includes Mary. Now, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was without sin. They teach that she was saved before she could commit even one sin. They teach what's called the immaculate conception that she was born sin-free. But none of this is biblical. But still they go further. They worship Mary. They pray to her. They even consider her as the co-mediatrix or the co-redemptrix when it comes to salvation and mediating with God. And this means she plays a part in the salvation of sinners. Brothers and sisters, this is nothing less than idolatry. Mary is a created being like all of us. To worship Mary or her likeness or image is to sin in violation of the first two of the Ten Commandments. You know them from Exodus 20. One through four says, And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. To worship Mary takes from Jesus the glory that is due him and him alone. Now, I know that many of you come from a Roman Catholic background, and I don't mean to upset you. I really don't. But so much of what you were taught is wrong, and I fear that you might have a false sense of salvation. And I urge you to come talk with Pastor Ron or Pastor Steve or come talk with me to learn what true salvation is. It is in Jesus Christ alone. It is in his finished work alone. It is in his death, his burial, and his resurrection alone. It is not the work of anybody else. We don't go to anybody. We pray to no one other than our Lord. And we pray directly to our Lord. Jesus is our mediator before the throne of grace. Well, in verses 31 through 33, Gabriel delivers the announcement he was sent to bring. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And we be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Just as Gabriel told Elizabeth. Or I'm sorry. Just as Gabriel told Zechariah about Elizabeth. He now tells this young girl that she will become pregnant. And will give birth to a male child. And like he told Zechariah. He even tells her the name of her child, Jesus. Now, in those days, names were very important. See, they meant something. And a name was given to someone as an insight into something about the person, maybe his birth or his character, or his personality, or, or something like that. Well, recall Jacob and, and Esau. Esau was also called Edom, which is similar to the Hebrew word for red. And remember the story of the red stew that Edom traded his birthright for? And he's called Edom, red. Jacob means he takes by the heel or he cheats. Recall Jacob was born grasping the heel of his twin brother Esau. And it was Jacob who God had chosen, even from the womb. And it was Jacob who later on deceived Isaac and got the blessing. Well, John means God is gracious. And it's a fitting name for the forerunner of the Messiah. It is God's grace that is being poured out on the world. Jesus, which is a Greek version of the Hebrew Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. Now, Luke didn't explain the meaning of the name Jesus, but we know this is the case from Matthew 121 when the angel appears to Joseph in a dream telling him about Mary's soon-to-take-place pregnancy. So in God's birth announcement, he announces both the, the sex of the child and he announces the name and gives us that information. But then Gabriel talks specifically about Jesus. He tells Mary that Jesus will be great. I remember Gabriel told Zechariah that John would be great before the Lord. But here Jesus is great on his own accord. 
There is no great before the Lord. Just he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the most high is a direct reference to God himself. In Genesis 14, 18, we read that Melchizedek was the priest of God most high. In spurning the offer of reward from the king of Sodom, Abraham said that he had lifted his hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Other references to God most high can be found in in Luke and in Acts. In Mark 5, 7, Jesus confronts a man with a demon who says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So Gabriel is telling Mary that the baby she is to bear is God. When John is born, we read in Luke 1.76 that Zechariah said that John will be called the prophet of the Most High. Again, a reference to the messenger. Now, some refer to Mary as the mother of God. And this is incorrect. God does not have a mother. There is no God the mother as there is God the father. She is not part of the Trinity and she is not divine. Jesus is the child of Mary, the human child of Mary, but he is the son of God. God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and there will be no end to his kingdom. Well, this harkens back to the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, God tells David, your throne will be established forever. Isaiah 9, 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is another prophecy to be fulfilled and another indication that the baby is the promised Messiah. And then we read Mary's response in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now note the difference in Mary's response and Zechariah's response. Zechariah wants proof. How will I know this? Mary didn't doubt what the angel told her. She merely wanted to know, how would this be accomplished? Note she said, how will this be? It was a done deal for Mary. She knew it was going to happen. She didn't need proof. She just wanted to understand. So Gabriel tells her how this would happen. Starting in verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. The angel explains a miracle. The Holy Spirit would come upon Mary and the power of God would overshadow her. This would be a creative work of the Holy Spirit who is God. And because of this, the child would be called holy, the son of God. Now, some say that Jesus was sinless because he didn't have a human father. 
because Adam, or I'm sorry, because Joseph wasn't involved. And they often cite the first part of Romans 5.19. For as by one man, you mean Adam, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. But consider Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. By the way, the psalm was also written by Mary's ancestor, David. See, this was a unique, one-of-a-kind miracle. No human reproductive activity was involved in this. Now, I can't explain how it happened. I just know it did. Trying to compare anything with how Jesus was conceived just does not work. We accept it for its truth because God said it. And this is what happened. And to emphasize the power of God... Gabriel tells Mary in verse 36 and 37, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary's reaction is one of humble submission. In verse 38, we read, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it, be let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary believed. She believed. She submitted herself to God. So we compare this young girl's response, a young girl compared to a, a learned priest. She believed. He wanted proof. Jesus said in Luke 18, 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is an attitude of humility, one of trust, one of humble submission to God, not one of arrogance, not one of entitlement, certainly not an attitude based on what someone has or has not done. And we consider later the Magnificat of Mary, the, the passage Lloyd read this morning. Mary magnifies God. She refers to him as her savior. She notes her own humble state. And then she says she's blessed. Not because of anything she has done. Oh no. But because of the great things God has done for her. You see, we too are blessed. Because of the great things God has done for us. He sent his son to die for us. To reconcile us to him. To redeem us from our sins. Well then John and Jesus meet for the first time. And this takes us to the third point. John and Jesus. The first encounter. So follow along as I read verses 39 through 45. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country and to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to, to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears... The baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her 
from the Lord. Mary travels to visit her relative and the two pregnant women, one old and one young, they meet. And as soon as Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, John leaps within her womb. This is the first instance of John preparing the way for Jesus in the fulfillment of prophecy. Right there, he leaps for joy. Jesus is here. And even though she didn't ask for it, God gives Mary a powerful sign confirming that the baby inside her is indeed the Son of God. Elizabeth calls the fruit of Mary's womb blessed. And she refers to Mary as the mother of my Lord. Now, as I said before, not the mother of God for all the reasons I've already shared. And the emphasis is not on Mary, but it is on the lordship of Jesus, of the baby within her. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she's declaring here that Jesus is Lord. The baby in Mary's womb is the Lord. And then she encourages Mary by giving Mary a blessing for believing what she was told. And then we come to Mary's song of praise in verses 46 to 45. And listen again as I read those. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And then in verse 56, Luke tells us, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. God was silent for 400 years, but he was at work nonetheless. And when he broke his silence, it was to announce the coming of the promised Messiah and his messenger. God's announcements should leave absolutely no question as to who this baby is that Mary is carrying. He is the son of the Most High, conceived not by man, but by the Holy Spirit, born without sin. His messenger is sent before him, and even in the womb, his deity is confirmed. Today, we might feel that God is silent. Like Israel, we might feel that God has abandoned us. Evildoers prosper while the faithful suffer. But God is not idle. He foretold the first advent of his son. And we're celebrating it this month. And likewise, he has foretold the second advent of Jesus. He is coming again. And when he comes, it will be more majestic than the first advent. He won't be coming as a baby, as a lamb to be slain. He will be coming as the conquering Lord. Think about that when you see the baby in the manger. Think about that when you sing the Christmas hymns. Jesus is the child of Mary, but he is the son of God. If you don't know this Jesus, 
Come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Steve. Come talk to Pastor Ron. We would love to help you come to know this Jesus. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we, we read this passage, as we learn from Luke, we know that you are a God who fulfills his promises, a faithful God who declared beforehand that he would send his messenger in the power of Elijah. And you did just that. You announced the birth of the messenger. You declared that you would send your son. You would send the Messiah. And you did just that. And you announced the birth of the Savior. Father, what joy there is. Father, as we read these passages over and over, help us to encounter Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, confirmed in the womb, confirmed by the angel Gabriel, a confirmed fulfillment of prophecy, your promise to save mankind. Father, help us not look at the manger in the same way, but to know that from birth, this is God. Lord, I pray for all who are within the hearing of these words. Lord, please bless. Father, please give us faith. Help us to trust in your promises as you've so magnificently demonstrated you are faithful to fulfill. For we know that you will leave no promise unfulfilled. And we know that you have promised salvation. You have promised eternal life. Father, you have promised to be with us during hardship and during plenty. You will never abandon us. Help us to remember that. Help us not to demand proof, Father, but merely to have faith. In all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.